Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's the Wonky Show. We talk bailouts again student complaints international students and mental health it's all coming up often you feel very much that like you come into the role and you get involved in the day-to-day of the university and it feels across the sector from all the the different officers i've spoken to with this crisis a lot of officers have just stepped into their element of crisis management almost and and really listening closely to students so they can relay on the ground what's going on and what students are thinking and feeling and we found that that's been really valuable um, as you said to senior management when they're making Welcome to The Wonky Show, your direct way into this week's higher education, news, policy and analysis. I'm Wonky's Editor-in-Chief, Mark Leach, recording from my house in lockdown London. And while the weather may have turned grim, you can always curl up by the fire of informed policy discussion. And to stoke the cold with me this week, we have two fantastic guests. In Bristol, we have Hilary Jebby Ababio, Vice President, Higher Education Elect of the National Union of Students. Hilary. Tell us something that cheered you up this week. What's really cheered me up this week is that my whole flat house have decided that baking is what they want to do constantly. So I've been having a lot of lemon cake and baked goods in general. So it's been great. (laughs) And in Exeter, we have Steve Smith, of course, the Vice Chancellor of the University of Exeter. Um, Steve, some good news from your end this week, please. Well, from my end, uh, one of our postgraduate researchers, Ming Tao Fu, has donated 3,000 items of uh, PPE to hospice care. She sourced it from China and had it sent over. And it's just a wonderful example of how people are coming together in the middle of this crisis. So we start this week with the joint bailout proposal from Universities UK and uh, Million Plus, which is highlighting um, how universities can support public sector workers better and puts a bit more meat on the bones of the sector's uh, bailout proposal. Steve, you've been involved in the bailout discussions, I think, since um, since day one. Can you talk us through this? Yes, yeah, certainly. I mean, you've got to understand that it's an incredible achievement that, that UUK and Alistair Jarvis in particular deserves a lot of credit for this. UUK has been able to get all parts of the sector to agree on an overall bailout package. Um, it's trying to do two big things. Firstly, it's trying to replace lost international fee income, which, as you know, is around the 6.9 billion at risk, um, because clearly a large number of institutions rely on that income to cross subsidize research. And at the other uh, side of things, it's trying to look at stopping too much turmoil and too much volatility in the admissions round. If international students don't come, um, the temptation will be for, stu- for institutions to take large numbers of home students, thereby introducing a lot of volatility and putting pressure on students to change programs um, right in the middle of, of, of clearing. So for that reason, the, pro- the, the, the bailout project is to try and get a balance between research on, one, on the one hand and making sure there's not too much turbulence um, for institutions that would be financially threatened, I guess, if large numbers of their students went elsewhere. And we're waiting to see the government's response. We're told it's imminent um, and we hope that it's favourable. Hilary, is there, is there something else that you'd like to see in the in the sector's 
bailout proposal. I, I know that NUS has um, has put forward some ideas over the last week. Um, is, there, is there anything that you would like to see um, that universities specifically lobbying more for, when it, particularly when it comes to kind of the, the package for students? Yeah, so I think um, there's a few things on my mind when I think about um, the bailout. I'm really, really acutely conscious of students that have recently graduated and students that are graduating now and the job market they, they're entering, um, which is going to be extremely, extremely difficult to navigate. So I'm hoping to see some some assurances in investment in that area. Um, I'm also very conscious of international students and whether or not we're going to adjust to making sure that whatever the situation, they can still benefit from the UK higher education system and institutions are being flexible and fair about how they're doing that. And then the last thing that I would really be keen to see is an investment in greater accessibility measures. I spoke about a while ago how now that universities are having to put all of these measures in with online teaching um, and give provision out that is accessible to students that is non-physical, um, Right now, the sector cannot go back from that. And so I'm very keen to be seeing investment um, in that area to make sure that uh, students that need accessibility measures for their education um, are provided for permanently from now on. Steve, how do, you, how do you think these ideas are going down in, in Whitehall? I think different government departments are looking at them differently. I think for the Department for Education, they solve a very major problem because, as you know, the turmoil that could be introduced to the uh, admissions round could force a large number of institutions into some quite difficult financial situations. Um, there's some institutions that are financially not very strong at the moment, and it's clearly not good in the middle of this crisis to have them pushed towards to, to the wall. Um, so the Department for Education, I think, is, is very keen, certainly on the stabilisation mechanism that we've, we've proposed. Um, they also want a transformation fund which will allow them to support institutions to move to different kind of provision. I think the blockage, as has been well reported, is is really in the financing of this at the Treasury level. Uh, it's not, I don't think so much, they don't want to support the university sector, but they, as you know, as well as anyone, Mark, they want to make sure that they can see where the money is being used. So we are in a lot of discussions across the board with different government departments, but this deal requires the Home Office, Bays, uh, Department for Education, Treasury, Number 10, and others to sign up to it. We're waiting to hear and we, we, we think it's going to be okay. We think there's going to be uh, an announcement. Whether or not it's exactly in time is, is the issue because you'll remember the uh, uh, moratorium on unconditional offers ends at the end of this week and the minister doesn't want to re re-announce yet another delay in, in, in unconditionals. So there's some urgency in getting the deal um, sorted out. I mean, you mentioned unconditionals. What, what else do you think might be as come in the kind of quid pro quo because I mean, you know, there's never going to be there's never going to be kind of free free money or uh, you know policy levers without strings. Yeah, and I think I think we're all waiting to see what the strings are going to be. I mean, in a way, the deal itself imposes significant strings. On the one hand, it's saying to institutions that could readily expand, um, they could replace international student numbers with very very large numbers of highly qualified uh, UK students. Um, they could do that um, 
and, and therefore not to do that is actually restraint on their part. I think there'll be something um, about making sure that the st uh, students are absolutely protected through this round. I imagine if I was in Department of Education, I'd be really worried about the pressure that might be put by by a, a turbulent admissions round with the pressure on students who were trying to work out what they should do. Should they go where they said they were going to go? Should they go somewhere else? So I think there'll be some measures to kind of calm the process down this year, which will be discussed with UCAS and other bodies. But the aim has got to be to come up with an integrated package that works for both bits of the sector. And again, those of us who've been in the sector for a long while know this is a very rare show of unity amongst the sector because it's very difficult to get the sector to agree on all of these things. So the, the package is a package. The nightmare, Mark, is if one bit of the package gets accepted, but another bit doesn't. Can you help me out on, on the market stuff? Because, I mean, all the analysis that, that I've seen um, on the face of it, of the, of the student numbers cap proposal um, out of the UK would allow um, universities that can recruit large amounts of undergraduates that you, you hinted at um, to do so, which means that those um, institutions that have, that have struggled uh, to recruit in the past um, or, or just generally have a smaller market share could, you know, could find themselves even further squeezed by um, by the big and, and, and famous names. Well, the... There was a lot of discussion went on about about what numbers people had put in. I mean, the, the as you know, the measure says you can recruit 5% more than you uh, said you were going to recruit this year. Those uh, estimates of what you're going to recruit tend to be quite close to last year's estimates. Uh, sorry, last year's actuals. Therefore, the 5% was a compromise. It was a compromise between some institutions that wanted no increase over last year and other institutions that wanted to take a lot more students than they took last year. So there, it's a political compromise. It allows some flexibility. You've also got to remember, of course, that this year, because A-levels are going to be assessed in a slightly different way, um, there is the worry that we will have more students achieving their grades than in a normal year. And therefore, you might have the awkward legal situation where the, you get the grades to come to an institution, but because of a cap on last year's numbers, um, that student can't come and you're then into a legal dispute with the student. So it was a political compromise. And although you're absolutely right it will bake in in a way the the turbulence of recent years and it does increase it a little bit compared to what it would be what what's termed the wild west solution it's much preferable and and unconditionals being kind of obviously part of the, the quid pro quo hillary i mean I'm, I'm i go back and forth about this issue a lot and i'm, I'm really keen to to know what you think about them because on you know on the one end of the spectrum of the argument you said people say well there's pressure selling um it's not fair on students um um which i do have i do have some sympathy with and i think at kind of the worst end of it you know it does does look a bit like that but on the on the other end it seems to me that um with, with a level exams cancelled the data that um universities are working on uh working on now in terms of the um uh, of individual applicants the, the data is actually kind of better uh, the, the data about their um, success and their achievements is actually better now than it, than it will be potentially um, in, in August. So it's, it seems to me kind of it would be more rational to, to make an offer based on um, make an offer now rather than later on. But I can I can sort of see that I can see the arguments both ways. I'm just really keen on what, what you think. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm acutely aware of, um, of, of the effects that conditional and un unconditional offers can have on students. Um, I think it's really important that we find ways of giving more confident assurances to students that have historically been disadvantaged, like BAME students, for example, in A-level grades, especially predicted grades, um, and, and give ourselves time to really look at whether these um, whether the way we're assessing students and giving them their grades would be 
correctly mitigated against. So if they are giving out offers, the offers are fair and considerate to all of um, that going on. Steve, is it? I mean, you, obviously the moratorium's in place, but what, what was Exeter's uh, policy about unconditionals even going go before before COVID? We didn't use conditional unconditionals at all, um, and we don't we we don't use them. Um, so I think the complication comes, as I said earlier, if the if the deal breaks down, if there's no money forthcoming on the research side, then I think we're going to have to look very carefully at what we do. Uh, and we've looked at a number of options. Do we do we actually go ahead and try and secure the students um, that that have said they want to come to us? We've got seventeen and a half thousand students under offer to come to Exeter um, at the moment. Um, we're going to have to think about that, which is why I think the deal, you know, it's, it's a clever deal. It, it, it does give something to all parts of the sector. If that, if it breaks down, then I think, I think that is a difficult situation. And I'm certain that for the Secretary of State, the one outcome he doesn't want is, is a kind of anarchic situation this summer, which frankly isn't going to be, as Hillary says, it's not going to be good for students and it's not going to be good for the sector in the middle of a, of a, of a major crisis. Yeah, just to add on to that, I think a crucial a crucial thought piece that all institutions should be looking at, and and I would hope that on a on a government level they're thinking about is that, however they go forward with this deal, the students that you are accepting and the students that you are either giving offers to or not giving offers to, um, how are you thinking about how they're going to be supported going forward from that? So what is clearing going to look like and how are they going to be supported through that? And the students that do get the offers, how are they going to be supported once they join those institutions um, in a very acute way? So not just the general package of support that institutions are used to giving. How are you going to support students that may not have had the, the teaching, the content or the the environment to be able to transition into higher education like they normally would. It's interesting, Hillary, that that one of the things that that this crisis has taught us is we have to provide very different resources for students from different backgrounds who don't, you know, it's one thing being at home in a middle class household with a good Wi-Fi, um, good broadband, lots of books, you know, uh, and another one, uh, another being in a very different situation. So we've got, for example, and I'm sure lots of universities have got, we're now loaning out laptops, we're loaning out equipment, we're trying sending out dongles so people can get internet connection because m- m- teaching remotely and assessing remotely sounds straightforward, but it doesn't half show up the differences in the resources available to students from different backgrounds and that's going to be an issue I think in the coming academic year. I agree completely. I think it's important that right now we we don't stick too tightly to what's been tried and tested because the nature of the situation means that students are going to need things from you that they might not have necessarily needed as explicitly before. And it's really important that we be innovative but considerate. Um, and I'm it's encouraging to see institutions um that are really going the extra mile to make sure that that's, that's done well. And in all of that, the absolutely key relationship for us has been with the two student unions we've got at Exeter, the Students Guild on the, the Exeter campuses and the Students Union down on our Falmouth campus. I mean, we're working with them incredibly closely and they've been central in helping us identify the needs of various groups of students. And it's a great example of how really, really good cooperation, whatever differences we have over other issues, really good cooperation between students unions and university senior management can actually get the resources to people that who need them. And I, I'm sure around the 
country, there's been really a, a burgeoning of good, good working practices between universities and students' unions because they ultimately share the same goals on those issues. It's been interesting as an officer um, navigating this, this pandemic just because it, it often you feel very much that like you come into the role and you get involved in the day-to-day of the university and it feels across the sector from all the, the different officers I've spoken to with this crisis a lot of officers have just stepped into the element of crisis management almost and, and really listening closely to students so they can relay on the ground what's going on and what students are thinking and feeling. And we found that that's been really valuable, um, as you said, to senior management when they're making their decisions. And if we continue to have that human aspect where we're really on the ground listening and, you know, moving away from trying to do it in a, a metrics based way, but we really connect to people as people. I think that's really going to be what gets us through um, this and what really enables us to support students like they want us to. It's interesting, just to finish on this point for me, um, I thought before the crisis um, or as the crisis unfolded, um, I thought, I think we tended to think that the resourcing we needed to provide to students was the same. And I think what it's really, really shown me graphically is that when you move to online, um, actually, it accentuates differences between in the resourcing levels of students, you know, the social capital, the, the physical facilities they have to work in. And, you know, in a way, you think online is the same for everyone, but it absolutely isn't. And that's where we need our students' unions to be able to talk to us. Um, because, frankly, um, we've learned an enormous lot through this process um, and yeah. we haven't got everything right. I think there's going to be a big job of le- like doing lessons learned after this, after we've moved on from the worst of this um, this crisis. And I think it's going to be a massive job when we start to look at what we really mean by looking at disadvantaged students, what does WP actually mean and who falls into it and how do we support the different groups within that heading um, appropriately and in, and in not a catch-all um, type way, but really be targeted so we can give them that close support that they need I mean, l- listening to the dialogue between the two of you is, is fascinating and, and i think um i, th- I think you know we've got, a, we've got the incoming uh nus vice president of higher education we've got um the senior vice chancellor a uh, senior sector figure and you know you're both agreeing uh down the line and and you also both agree about the merits of, of working together and i think that um something positive that could come out of this is as steve you, you said a, a better even closer working relationship between student unions and, and universities, um, possibly even on the national level as well, between, um, you know, NU- NUS and uh, the rest of the sector. So um, I really enjoy this dialogue because I think that points us to um, a, a different and, and possibly a really positive place for everyone. Yeah, and I agree. I agree with Hillary. I mean, because because the point is um, we're required to think differently because we've never, none of us, not Hillary, not me, not the NUS, not Exeter University, been in this situation before. And actually, the thing that, that I've always known about student unions is whatever issues we have about anything, ultimately, they're there to try and support their student members. And in this situation, I'm sure this has happened to you, Hillary, our presidents are coming to us saying, we've been asked to do this by our students. They're getting more engagement because students have real needs. They go to their guild or their union and the guild or the union comes to us before 
it was kind of just offered. I suspect that it's been a real learning process for student unions and managements, uh, university managements across the country. What I'm feeling a lot at the moment is that the way student unions work is really going to be be highlighted through this process. I think university management, from my experience, have really seen the value of what we do at students' unions past what would traditionally be seen as what an SU or a guild would do, which would be campaigning or, or often, you know, it's reported that we do lots of like big flashy stuff when we go on marches and we 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 do demonstrations but the day-to-day work is is what's really impactful because that's where students are emailing us and and coming to speak to us and giving us phone calls telling us about their own experiences and that work really influences what we bring to the university and I think now that's becoming more exposed and so I really think student unions are going to have a, a useful but a really big job in restructuring how their relationship with universities look and and how they can be that critical friend in a way that students can can know that the pipeline from engaging with your student union representatives and the issues getting brought up to university management flows in a really transparent and coherent way. Right, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hello, this is Claire Marchand, Chief Exec at UCAS. My piece in Wonky this week has focused on the COVID cohort. So those students and applicants that are looking to come into UK higher education in 2020 and what is driving them and what they feel at the moment. We do know that three quarters of them have been personally affected by coronavirus. And certainly that's important for us to remember across the sector as we start thinking not just how we support them in admitting them into UK higher education, but transitioning in in the autumn or later during the course of 2020. We also know that the majority of them are sticking with their university choices, but a third of them are thinking about changes. And that makes it really important that we think about how confirmation and clearing this year balances the normal with the difference and how we are more flexible and more encouraging than ever before. We know that social media platforms are more and more important for those students to get the right information advice and I've focused on that as it's worked really well in recent weeks. So the Office for the Independent Adjudicator has released its annual report about the official complaints they dealt with over the past year. Hilary, uh, what jumped out at you looking at it? So the report had a lot of very interesting highlights. It was interesting to see that the overall complaints were up by 21%, bringing it to the highest ever figures that the OIA has gotten. Um, what I found really interesting as well was that a lot of the nature of the complaints were academic appeals based. Um, so it spanned from fitness to practice to sexual harassment and misconduct and um, there was quite a bit of focus on consumer rights. I think it would be really interesting seeing how the the sector interprets this given the COVID crisis. And I also think that the the data that came out with fitness to practice um, and looking at sexual harassment and misconduct, the two things that I found that really overlapped with that is that a lot of students felt that it was the lack of information and the lack of communication that was really stunting them in those two areas. And I think universities and institutions have a big lesson to learn in making sure that they're transparent and clear when they're going through these processes. Um, The last thing that really stood out um, that I mentioned just before was consumer rights. And I think right now, and we're seeing that value for money matters now more than ever, especially in assessing what the impact of COVID is going to be on students alongside the industrial action that many students will have faced this year or um, as they saw in 2019 too. Steve, Steve, do you think um, that, I mean, Hillary mentioned the industrial action, which obviously loomed, loomed so large over the last year. Do you think that, do you think the response to that does kind of give us a, a template for how we deal with the COVID crisis or is this kind of completely unique? I mean, I think the OIA report, as every year, shows a number of things, but in a sense, what we're seeing is nothing new. It's a continuation of trends. Um, the strike 
um, action has brought to the fore um, a very, very, very serious issue, which is the extent to which students see themselves as consumers and are treated as consumers. And if they're treated as consumers, you would expect them to react as consumers. So in that way, I think we're all on uh, a learning curve. We spend enormous amount of time here, and I'm sure every university does, on trying to make sure that whether there's strike action or not, neither the people on strike nor we as the university management want students to be damaged in any way. So there's a lot of work goes on by my colleagues here after strikes are over to mitigate uh, the, the, the effects so that the students don't, don't lose. But clearly we are moving and have been moving into a much more marketized higher education system. And what the OIA does and, and what universities are dealing with a lot more are these kind of complaints. They've grown enormously during my 18 years as a vice chancellor. When I started, students didn't see themselves as consumers, as, quote, paying, quote, for their education. Um, and I think that's altered everything. So this crisis, I think, is we're going to be judged as universities by how well we support our student communities. And I think every university around the country is trying hard to make sure that students don't lose out because of this really rather unique situation. Mm. And I mean, the uh, OIA itself said that, that, that this morning that it's going to need um, a joined up approach um, by the sector when it comes to dealing with um, uh, the kind of the, the COVID crisis, particularly if, if, you know, we're starting to look at, um, we're starting to talk about, you know, institutions coming close to collapse or some kind of market exit. I mean, they, they said they're especially worried about disorderly exits, uh, as you as you might imagine. I mean, that's, that's going to be a worry for everyone. Hilary, what would you like to see the sector do um, to help protect students and I guess give students confidence that if if we uh, we are heading towards those kind of things you know it's you know that they're they're they're, um, they're going to be looked after I think the complaints regime is obviously an important part of this but it's kind of too late in some ways you know if a provider uh, collapses it's going to be too late to then you know kind of remedy that with a with a complaint if if if, uh, if you fall through the cracks yeah I, I think the sector has a really tough situation to navigate I think what students are really needing are a few things I think right now what's really big is the financial security and it's not a surprise that tuition fees um, came up in this report as it usually would do um, I think students want to know that they have that financial security um, that what they've what they've essentially put in, they're going to get back. So they will get that teaching and the the, the value in their degrees that they signed up for. Um, so I really think that students want assurances that they will still get the degree that they signed up for and still be able to, you know, have something to go out into the job sector or or if they want to go into further academia, have something to leave um, their 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 higher education um, experience with that would be of value to them. I think it's also important that students um, are really calling for just close support and transparency. I think right now the sector, there's a lot of things going on in the background and students want clarity on what's going on and what their future would look like. Um, Given that everything is so precarious and we don't know what's happening day by day I think students just want to feel in the loop um, in what's going on and I think the NUS safety net campaign reflects a lot of that from the feedback they, that they got in their survey. Let's see who else has been blogging for us this week. Hi there I'm Julie Sanders uh, Deputy Vice Chancellor at Newcastle University. My piece was aiming to reflect on the upcoming ap- academic year really trying to use learning from from my own discipline which is literature and drama to invite us not not just to respond to the COVID-19 context and, and, and challenge with talk of remote or online delivery as somehow the the new normal but but rather to embrace it as a 
a temporary, a hybrid state and to invite us all uh, to think creatively and with compassion and with empathy about how to rebuild uh, as quickly as possible next year, accepting um, certainly imperfection, but hoping that with some passion and heart, we can do things in the best interests of our wonderful students. So for me, it was about uh, valuing the importance of physical encounter and uh, exploration and community, really, and about sowing a few seeds of hope and, and, and opportunity amid all the challenges. Right, QS has released a survey of, of prospective international students, um, and it's found, probably unsurprisingly, that many um, are changing their plans in light of the pandemic crisis. Steve, um, does that back up what you're seeing at Exeter? Well, no, it doesn't, and and nor does it. I mean, I, I chair UUK International, and uh, talking yesterday to Vivian Stern, I mean, th- we we see a lot of confirmation um, of places, a lot of deposits being paid on all these measures. Um, the indications contradict the absolutely clear findings from QS and other sources. Um, another one coming out uh, soon, I believe, saying very much the same thing. So there's a bit of a nervousness, I guess, about what the real situation is. Um, I think a lot's going to depend on uh, the progress uh, of being able to find a vaccine or or how the crisis is. There a second wave here in the autumn. So what we've picked up is that students very much want to continue to come to the UK. They prefer face-to-face learning to um, remote learning. Um, but the, the big issue for universities is that I think we don't quite know what the uh, autumn is going to bring in terms of numbers, but clearly the indications from QS survey and others is that there's a lot of uh, concern about from prospective students over whether or not they are going to come and uh, study in the UK. And that, of course, uh, goes back to the big issue of of the effect of that loss um, on the financial sustainability of the university sector in the UK. It seems to me that there's a you know there's a lot of this is outside out of the hands of universities in that you know if there are travel restrictions simply you know if it's impossible for yeah institutions to come here then they then they won't yeah and, and i mean you know literally uh, we do not know do we whether you'll be able to travel from the major countries that, that send international students to the uk you don't know whether they'll be able to arrive here and will they have to be quarantined what will the airfares be will there be flights um so there's so much up in the air and i think that's that's i mean i think the big point to make though is is my clear view is that the long-term trend is that students will want to travel still to around the world to leading institutions um that education is still an incredibly important uh, goal of many families around the world so i think for me mark the question is this is a one-year problem is it a two-year problem um and my view is actually that the education sector in the uk remains one of the great strengths of uh, the uk uh, economy and society and i expect things to pick up you know quickly after that the difficulty is bluntly we don't know how far down we're going to go before we come back up yeah one of, one of the things that always um, always worth paying attention to is kind of the signals that, that different governments send and the small little different things that um that can be done that can really affect how people view a country and whether they want to go and study it and i ha- i have a theory that the early part of the, of the uk government's response to the pandemic got a very bad reputation not just in the in the uk but around the world nowhere close to as bad as the you know visibly bad as uh, the the trump administration's um response but um 
I wonder, I, I kind of, I hypothesize that um, a lot of international students will, will kind of put their sort of health and safety at the, at the top of the top of the list of concerns when it comes to, um, it comes to deciding what to do. And I wonder whether we've kind of shot ourselves in the foot. Well, on the other hand, I mean, I agree with you, the signals matter enormously. Um, the, the government's policy previously to this administration's policy on visas, as you know, was extraordinarily damaging um, to the sector. The one thing I would say is I think British universities have looked after international students well. I mean, here we've had uh, extraordinary measures uh, working to make sure our international students feel safe and secure. Um, we've sent messages to them. We've provided food uh, uh, for them. We've given them free accommodation. I think, you know, kindness and the message I'd like the sector to, 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 to focus on is come to the UK. We will look after you. You know, we will not throw you out on the streets. I mean, we will not, um, uh, charge you large sums of money and, and not allow you to, to, to move around. So I think there's a lot we can do. And I think for the UK, um, the kind of duty of care and the, the kind of pastoral side of how we look after our students is going to be a big plus because I think our universities do provide a very good experience to students. Yeah, I think what would be really interesting in looking at whether international students will find incentive to come back to the UK um, higher education system is what is going to be looked at in terms of their value for money for what they pay um, into institutions. A lot of international students um, I found have come this year to talk about how the tuition fees that they've paid um, has not matched up to the experience that they expected. And given that we've had strikes and now the pandemic um, have a big impact on their learning experience, um, it'll be really interesting to see what the, the sector does to make sure that they feel confident that A, they're not being used as cash cows and B, they're getting the support that they need to really thrive um, coming to the UK education system and so it'll be really interesting to see how the sector you know picks up on that and responds to that yeah i think my my own view hillary is that the sector is acutely aware i mean yeah um it concentrates the mind to think of losing 6.9 billion pounds um and and that's not to make the simple point about the money but it, it i think we talked about it earlier i think one of the effects of the crisis has been to focus on the, the stated and actual needs of students and I think that's a good thing. And I think for international students, I think we've learned very, very, very quickly that some very simple housekeeping things about are they safe? Have, do they have food? Um, are they looked after? Can they communicate? Do they have the facilities? Can they have the access? You know, we've got 500 students still on campus here and they get a phone call every week um, from someone to make sure they're OK. Um, these things have focused us on how we treat students and in a way, it's, I think, a helpful corrective to, to the kind of business as usual. Oh, you know, they'll come, we'll, they'll study, we'll get, they'll get degrees, they'll get good jobs when they go back. And I, I think it's reminded us that we really, really do have to look after students and not assume they all have the same levels of needs or the same levels of problems and difficulties. I think now as we start to move towards an, a new normal, whatever that would look like, it'll be interesting to see that it'll be interesting to see what students are feeling about how universities have responded to all of this. And I would be really interested to see if if value for money in the sense that I've heard it from international students will come up to, to institutions in the sector and how they would respond to that. Um, because I appreciate that the sector has done a lot to, to stretch itself to make sure that international students are supported, especially if they've stayed um, in the UK. But I think international students are still looking for greater assurances that they're, they're going to be valued um, more given like going forward sorry yeah so it'll be really interesting to see what happens but I know that you know there's things that are still 
like heavily on their minds to do with visas um, and to do with even the post-study work visa. There's a lot of international students that are unsure about how that comes into effect. If, for example, it's their graduation year and they've had to move um, back home because of the crisis, then they're not sure on that. The fact that we, the, the, the post-study work visa was extended, I think we should push for it to be extended further. I think actually there's a lot we've got to do. You're absolutely right. What happens if you graduate? Then do you come back? How does that work? I have to say, I think uh, uh, the visa regime is uh, the people dealing with visas in government have been actually very flexible and tried to be genuinely attentive to, 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 to those needs. But there's a lot we've got to do. There's no God given right why the UK should be able to take in international students in the numbers we have. I mean, you know, there's a lot of competition out there. We've got to make certain that the, that we provide the very best education and increasingly, Hillary, the support that students need. I mean, that's the key word. It's And I think that what the crisis has done has meant that a student isn't just a student. Students come in different shapes and sizes and needs and packages. And we've got to be attentive to the very, very different needs that different groups of students have. David Kernahan, Wonky's Associate Editor, caught up with Wendy Thompson, Vice-Chancellor of the University of London. Hello, Wendy. Uh, thanks for taking the opportunity to chat to uh, Wonky. Obviously, the University of London is an institution with a distinct mission and a distinct history that will be adapting to uh, the COVID-19 pandemic and the global lockdown in a very different way to lots of other UK uh, providers. Uh, well, I mean, it, it is a big change for all of us, and that's also the case for the University of London. I guess the difference we have is that we started doing distance education in 1858. So we haven't had to do it on a weekend, as I, mm. as I understand from some of my colleagues has been necessary. So that's been an advantage for us. Nevertheless, we've had the challenge, if I, if I start with our online education and distance yeah. learning, we have uh, one difference. We don't have much coursework uh, on our programs. They're all exam-based assessments. So we haven't been able to use coursework the way others have for uh, finalizing a grade. So that's meant we've had to look at some way of getting our, uh, what's about 37,000 students doing some form of assessment that will be uh, different. Uh, add to that that we've got 23 time zones. Hmm. Uh, and you can never underestimate the uh, resourcefulness of students when it comes to um, collaboration, let's call it politely, uh, <laughs> across time boundaries. Uh, we've had to think of some way of getting uh, you know, a secure, credible form of assessment across those time zones. Uh, and in many cases, we've got a lot of law, law degree students and others of that kind. They've got to meet the sort of professional standards of uh, integrity for the, for, the, uh, for the qualification. So, you know, that's been our big challenge. Um, add to it that a lot of the countries we're operating in, their infrastructure is, you know, far from secure in terms of internet and, and even electricity, really, in some cases. And although, you know, we may complain about working in small apartments in London, you know, you're looking at multi-generational households where students are working alongside, uh, you know, parents, grandparents, children, and perhaps also some domestic animals. So, you know, it, it's, that, that was the big challenge for us. Mm. And I think really, you know, we have probably gone beyond what anyone else has ever thought about doing. Uh, we haven't quite pulled it off, but we've got it planned. It will happen over the next uh, couple of months. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a combination of, you know, varying the court, varying the exams a little bit from location to location, uh, using, encouraging people to use different forms of assessment, more, you know, open book or online uh, kind of essays. And, uh, 
I guess also something called proctoring, which was a new term to me mm. I hadn't learned before, which is a kind of an online uh, invigilation, if you want to call it that, which adds uh, another dimension of security. Anyway, I've just, you know, told it to you in a minute and a half, and it sounds probably pretty straightforward, but I think it's required some of the, you know, deepest creativities amongst people who've been at this for a while to come up with a way of, uh, of doing it. While our students, of course, have been running their own campaigns, as you can imagine, uh, uh, advocating for what they'd like to see us doing so it's, it's that's been a pretty yeah i was actually going to ask about that because in lots of the other uk providers there's been calls for no detriment there's been calls for assessment uh, based on uh, work before the pandemic started rather than afterwards um i was kind of naively thinking that for distance learning students there would be perhaps less of that but i mean you're suggesting that's not the case no i mean most of our uh uh, most of our work is actually exam based and that's partly you know to keep the credibility and, and integrity of of the qualifications that really i think has served our students and, and the university of london you know reputation well so it's there's very little coursework in most of our programs um and a lot of our courses particularly undergraduate programs are not exclusively online you know they're combined with a an array of over 100 teaching centers uh, around mm-hmm. the world uh which I think has allowed our students to, you know, get better outcomes, if you like, uh, by combining the distance uh, with the yeah. uh, with the face-to-face support. Also, still delivering, you know, the academic quality and uh, and reputation of that comes on the, uh, you know, on the achievements of our member institutions. You know, so Kings, UCL, LSE, you know, Queen Mary City. You know, these are the institutions that are branded on these qualifications and with whom mm. we've been working. So it's uh, it's quite an undertaking. Finally, student mental health remains a top issue for the sector uh, to tackle at the moment in this crisis. Um, and there's been lots of work and thinking going on into how to do that. Hilary, can you talk us through some of that? So um, over the past few weeks, we've heard that the OFS have given um, greater clarity to what student premiums can be used for and disabled student premiums um, in ensuring that mental health supports and support services are bolstered um, during this time. We've also seen NUS um, launched their big campaign, the Student Safety Net campaign, talking a lot about how mental health um, remains a key issue and giving recommendations on how the sector can support students um, with mental health support services. And finally, there was a blog um, uploaded by Student Minds talking all about addressing mental health. And what was really interesting in there is that they talked a lot about listening and making sure that they're listening to students and, and responding to students based on what they're hearing. So it was really interesting to see that mental health is being taken as a key priority and and it'll be interesting to see how we navigate that with students being at home and in different spaces at the moment. Steve, um, how are you thinking about this problem at um, uh, locally? Mental health issues have shot up the agenda. I think probably the biggest shock um, of the last decade has been the rise uh, of mental health issues. I mean, what I mean by that is not the rise as such, but the ability of students to talk about the problem. I mean, I think there's a good side to that, that, that students can now, there's, there's less stigma than there used to be about, about admitting to having mental health needs. I mean, we worry about physical health, but we've never really looked at mental health. But in the last 10 years, it's really come along as a major issue. The, the scary thing for us is, um, whatever we do, we feel we need to do more. Um, if you have a, uh, a very bad, uh, uh, issue with a student and uh, with a mental health crisis, whatever you've done, you never feel you've done enough. Um, I think 
the way we're now moving through remote working is going to make that really difficult. I think we are very worried. As you know, at Exeter, we uh, we kind of pioneered the, the safety net uh, policy of no detriment, and that's been adopted by a lot of institutions. Um, but we are worried and, and we, we actually think that we've got a lot of work to do to try and make sure that students uh, do not suffer because of the way in which the form of working we're undertaking puts them under even greater uh, stress. And that, by the way, that applies to staff as well. I think for all of us, these are difficult times in dealing with mental health challenges. But as a vice chancellor, I have to say, um, it's probably the one thing that has kept me awake at night more than anything else over the last few years because of the extent to which people are arriving. I mean, we had 2,600 students access mental health facilities at the University of Exeter last year, and 25% of those came with pre-existing diagnoses. Um, and that's something which is uh, very different to, to, to what you know I had when I started out being a VC. So it's massively significant. So that's about it for this week. Remember to delve deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via iTunes or your favorite Android podcast directory. Or find the feed you need on wonky.com slash podcast. And if you fancy appearing as a guest on The Wonky Show, drop us an email on teamonwonky.com and we'll be in touch. So thanks to Hillary, Steve, and everyone at Team Wonky for making it happen behind the scenes. Until next week, stay safe. Stay safe.